So today we'll be in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you'd like to turn there with me. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Let me read those for us. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that, to come together before you to worship you, to be renewed in you, to learn again the gospel of your Son, We pray, Father, that you open our hearts and minds to receive it, to be transformed by it. Help us to see and walk by it. We pray, Father, that as we continue to sit here and as we listen, Father, that we would truly be convicted in our hearts and encouraged and comforted at the same time in only the way that your gospel can do. We thank you for this, and we thank you for your word, and we pray, Father, that you bless it to us now. In the name of your Son, amen. So this is the third week of Philippians, and we have already looked at what the knowledge of the gospel is, what a fellowship of the gospel is, and so now we turn our attention to what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. If you went away last week wondering how to grow in our fellowship as a church, or you've ever wondered what what true Christian fellowship looks like, then Paul's words in Philippians 2, 1 through 4 are for you. Just for some context, the section that we're in in this letter in the beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, Paul, uh, Paul reminded the saints that they are a fellowship of the gospel. He reminded them of that. They always have been. They've always participated in the work of, of the gospel because they're partakers of grace. They're, they are already a fellowship of the gospel. So now what he's doing um, in chapter 1, verse 27, is he's, that's a start of a new section. He's telling them then how to live in that gospel that they're already in. And so what we're going to be um, looking at comes from actually... Chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what we're going to be looking at today is what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And as I said last week, our struggles as Redeemer Church stem from our lack of unity internally because we fail to live as a fellowship of the gospel every day. Nothing we do can make us a fellowship of the gospel. We are one already, and because we are, because we are united in the gospel as partakers of grace, we are called to live a life worthy of that gift. We can't accept God's grace and then live contrary to it. Paul is worried about the affections of the Christians in Philippi. He's worried that their pride is causing envy, which is causing disunity, which is hurting their witness in the world. Paul knows that the best way to expel the idols of the heart and the lies of Satan is to proclaim the gospel, and he does in this letter over and over and over again. Last week, we read chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says we are a fellowship of the gospel, a community formed around the giving and receiving of grace. He takes that idea up again in chapter 2, verse 1, in which he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation, which is fellowship in the spirit, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is using a rhetorical device here, a conditional sentence, to provoke the Philippians, the readers, to actually look at themselves, examine themselves. If there is any, he says over and over again, to which every reader responds, yes, of course, of course. I have been encouraged in Christ. Of course I have, Paul. I have received comfort from love, Paul. What's the matter with you? (laughs) I do fellowship in the spirit. I have affection and I have sympathy. So what's your point? Paul says, okay then, if those things are true, fulfill my joy by being unified in your affections and in your mind. Paul mentions being unified in their mind in verse 127, twice in 2.2 and once in 2.5. Paul is very concerned about how the Philippians are thinking about themselves, about one another, and about Jesus. Because he knows that right thinking about yourself, about one another, and about Jesus leads you to right living. What you think leads to how you live. But he doesn't mean raw knowledge. He means how the brain functions, how you think. He means something like the attitude of the mind. This is what he's concerned with. And in verse 3, he says, do everything from humility, which is better translated as humble-mindedness. See, he's getting at the point here. He's worried about how they're thinking, and so he's going to tell them how to think. Humble-mindedness. Do everything, not from selfish, selfishness, which is how he describes his opponents who preach from impure motives, but do everything from humble-mindedness. Humble-mindedness is the key to living in gospel fellowship. Humble-mindedness is worthy of the gospel. And if you are not living with a humble mind, then you are not living a life worthy of the gospel. The humble-mindedness described in verses 3 through 4 in chapter 2 was the same humble-mindedness of Jesus according to verses 5 through 11. This is where he gets it from. He says, do you want an example of what I'm talking about? We go back to the first sermon, the knowledge of the gospel. He says, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. Okay, he didn't think his divinity was something to protect him from what was coming. He came as a man. He came as a slave. He came to die. He came to die in the worst possible way. He humbled himself again and again and again and again. That humble-mindedness is what he wants the Philippians to put on. It's what all Christians need to put on. The life worthy of the gospel operates as the gospel to the community in which you fellowship. It's kind of a strange way of thinking about it, but the life worthy of the gospel operates as the gospel to the community in which you fellowship. Okay, That same humility, that same exaltation of Jesus, that's how your life should be described in the fellowship of the gospel. Paul doesn't prescribe a list of actions. A life worthy of the gospel is fruit of humble-mindedness lived in imitation of Jesus. There is no program, there's no system, there's no multi-step plan that accomplishes gospel fellowship. There is a relationship. This is what he's, the point he's trying to make through this entire letter. He has something that he wants them to know, that he wants them to remember. And he doesn't give them a multi-step plan. He reminds them of the relationship that they already have in Christ to one another. A relationship which transforms individuals, who transforms a church, that transforms a community. This is the transformation of the gospel here. It transforms individuals that transform a church that then, in the end, transform a community. The more we dwell on the humiliation of Jesus as Christ and his exaltation as Lord, which is the gospel, the more we know ourselves as needy partakers of grace, as slaves to the Father's will, the more our agendas and self-importance give way to true humility and compassionate service to one another. If you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, don't try harder to serve. 
I know, last week we, we, I, people talked to me about this after our sermon. Well, okay, what I need to do is serve more. What I need to do is be more humble. Um, you can't just do those things. Those things don't just happen because you want them to. Otherwise, you would have never needed Jesus in the first place. Don't try harder to be selfless. Don't, please. Don't try harder to be compassionate. Sounds counterintuitive to how we usually think about things. The key to all of these things, the key to being more compassionate, the key to loving others more, the key to service is humility. And humility is the fruit of your relationship with Jesus. The more you know him, the more you love him, and the less you love yourself. The more you know him, the more you love him, and the less you love yourself. Humility leads to self-forgetfulness. That's a phrase I took from Timothy Kelly. He wrote a wonderful little book called Self-Forgetfulness. Humility leads to self-forgetfulness, which leads to compassion, service, and a richer fellowship in the gospel. The Christian life is organic. It's not a machine. Okay? It's not a bunch of levers you just pull on. Okay? Here's the gauge that measures compassion, so I'm just going to crank that one up. And then here's my humility gauge. I'm just going to hit the buttons here, microwave some there. Right? It's not how it works. It's not a machine. Okay? The Christian life is organic. So the more you cultivate soil, your relationship with Jesus, the more good fruit will grow up and mature in your life. That's how it works. You cultivate that dirt, that relationship with Jesus you already have. The more you cultivate that, the more all of these other fruit will come springing up. We need self-forgetfulness. If we as a people need anything, what we need is self-forgetfulness. Forget yourself. Forget it. And we need it as we grow deeper into Christ as a fellowship unified in our minds and in our affections. So let us consider how our relationship with Jesus cultivates humility and self-forgetfulness so that we will mature into compassionate servants of one another, living lives worthy of the gospel. Before we attain the fruit of self-forgetfulness, we have to understand how our relationship with Jesus fosters humility. How does that work? How does our relationship to him automatically produce humility inside of us? Well, he says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... In humble-mindedness, count others more significant than yourselves. Seems pretty straightforward. I guess we're done. I guess we can just go do that. No, (laughs) it doesn't quite work that way. Humility is really the beginning of all human virtue. It is the fruit of the spirit from which all the other fruits spring. Jerry Bridges wrote that humility is in every area of life, in every relationship with other people, Oh, I'm sorry. Humility in every area of life, in every relationship with other people, begins with the right concept of God as the one who is infinite and eternal in his majesty and holiness. Okay, here's one from C.S. Lewis. I love this one. He, he said this in Mere Christianity. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. As a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Now, you're going to hear a lot of quotes from me today, and that is because I actually don't know very much about humility, but I read some books about it. So we're going to just... Pump this thing full of quotes. Looking up to God sets us in our proper place. That's what it does. It teaches us how to relate, not only to God, but to everyone else. Humility, which develops into self-forgetfulness, 
puts conceit and selfish ambition to death so that Christ-like uh, Christ life fills and overflows us. Okay, Humility, which develops into self-forgetfulness, puts conceit and selfish ambition to death so that Christ-like life fills and overflows us. The path of humility, the one that Paul was on, the one he's talking about with the Philippians, led him to say this in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said again in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul has left his self behind. He is not conceited. He's not, uh, his pride is smashed. He is not selfishly ambitious as he labors for God's glory and the good of his brothers and sisters. Paul lives a life worthy of the gospel. That's what he does, and that's what we all need to do. We all struggle against ourselves, that thing that needs to be put to death. We think way too highly of ourselves. Pride is the root of all vices and all sins. Everyone's pride is in constant competition with everyone else's. Pride is what made Lucifer the devil. Pride desires to put everyone and everything under our own feet. We are constantly comparing ourselves to others. We want to be richer and prettier and funnier and smarter and healthier. A lot of sin, like greed, for example, springs from pride. Not because we necessarily want a bunch of stuff, but because we want more stuff than other people have. That's really what it comes down to. And if you think about your life, you'll see pride all over the place. It isn't really so much that you want something. It's that someone else has it. Or that if you have it, someone else won't have it. This is how pride works. We see everyone else, and we see what we have in comparison, and we either become proud or we become envious. Either way, sin arises a great deal. So long as we look no further than those around us, we are quite satisfied with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We assess ourselves in very flattering terms as being well on our way to perfection. If all we do is look around, right? I hear this uh, in conversations um, in which I'm speaking, right? So-and-so has something I don't have because he's a cheat. Uh, I have what that person doesn't have because I am awesome and they are not, right? If you listen to yourself, this is, right? that person has it. Somehow they, were, they did something they shouldn't have to get it. And that person doesn't have it because I'm awesome. I mean, this is how we talk about ourselves. Okay? As soon as we lift our thoughts to God, though, right? as soon as we go from looking around to looking up, we reflect on his nature and how perfect he is in righteousness and wisdom and virtue. We realize, lo and behold, we are not the standard. Oh, no. Right? As soon as we lift our thoughts to him and see how wonderful he is, as soon as we look at that gospel and we see his humiliation and his exaltation, how wonderful he is, we, we see that we are no longer the standard. You might be wondering if you struggle with pride. Okay? A lot of people think pride is something rich, beautiful people have. Okay? Most people think that poor, ugly people, people marginalized, people who don't have a lot, people don't usually think of them as prideful. But pride really is a problem for everyone. It's a problem for everyone. Now, there's an easy test to determine if you are dealing with pride. Okay, now, everyone, everyone now, take your hand and put it in front of your mouth. Okay, now, take a deep breath. Now, exhale through your mouth. Okay, you feel that. That's breathing. If you are doing that, you have a pride issue. Okay? <laughs> if you're not breathing, raise your hand, and we'll send Byron to save you. No. Okay, if you are breathing, you have a pride problem. 
Um, it's everybody. Everybody has a pride problem. If that test is inconclusive, <laughs> I hope it's not, then just answer these following simple questions. How do you feel when you are inconvenienced? How do you feel when you're inconvenienced? I'm always shocked by this one. Earlier this week, I, I literally walked out of a Starbucks because it was taking too long. <laughs> it was really, I, once I got to the car, I realized how bad that was. I was like, I mean, seriously, three minutes, anyway, right? How, how do you feel when you're inconvenienced? When people don't pay attention to you. When someone doesn't say bye after church, they leave. Hey, that person didn't even say bye to me. When other people, uh, when other drivers make mistakes, how does that make you feel? When someone calls you out for a legitimate sin, how dare that person, right? How does that make you feel? We all walk around with ourself. It's our chief idol. Our conceit, our pride, and our selfish ambition to get more, be greater, feel superior to everyone else leads us about. It's a lot like Winston Churchill's depression. He was a very depressed man. And funny enough, he referred to it as walking his black dog. It's very strange. He referred to his depression, which he always struggled with, as walking his black dog. He described his depression as if it were a big black dog because he felt like he fed it and caressed it and nurtured it and walked around with it like his depression like it was his pet. Okay, imagine a dinner party with Churchill's black dog snarling at you. Imagine meeting him on the street and trying to talk to him, walking his big, menacing, ugly mutt. Right? That's what he felt like his depression was like for other people. Now, ourselves are just like that. We nurture them, we feed them, we caress them, we take them with us and are constantly drawing people's attention to them. Listen to the amusing things self said. Isn't self pretty? Isn't self funny? Isn't self so clever and smart? Isn't self know so much? We are people called to a community, but we, are all these, uh, we all have these rabid pets that we can't shut up about coming between us, taking up all of our conversation and all of our attention. People can't get close to us because we keep self out in front. And aren't we protective of our little self? We build walls around self and battlements, and you better not put my little self down, and you better not hurt my little self's feelings. We measure our self against everyone else's. Our self, our conceit, and our selfish ambition shuts our ears to one another. Worshiping self ignores the reality of our lives, that we are, in fact, partakers of grace. If all we're focused on is self, we forget the fact that we receive anything from God. Jesus doesn't heal the healthy. Remember this from last week? He only gives grace to foolish, broken, poor, wicked, ignorant morons. <laughs> he takes the dregs of the earth and he gives them his grace. There's no pride in that. None. And as long as we remember that, the gospel comes to people who need it because they're not okay by themselves. If we remember that, it's a little easier to put self to death. Jesus is very clear about how he thinks we ought to treat ourself, our little sweet self that we walk around. He says in Matthew 10, 38-39, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will in fact find it. The worthy life is one where self is crucified, where life in the service and cultivation of self is lost, and life in the service and cultivation of Christ is found. The more we fix our minds on Jesus, humiliated and exalted, 
Jesus the suffering servant, Jesus the raised king, reigning and ruling even now, loving and serving our every need, working in us what must be worked out in the service of others. The more we forget ourselves and think only of him, the more our attention is drawn away from ourselves to Jesus and his body, the church. Okay? You can't think of the head without thinking of the body. Right? When I, when I think of my wife, I don't just think of her head wandering around. I think of all of her. And when we put our mind on Christ, it's him, his head, and his body. Him and the church. Okay? Paul says in verse 3, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. And that's easy if you are constantly reminded of how insignificant you are. How Jesus fulfills your every need. How those around you are exactly the people that complete you in the body of Christ. Okay, we need to actually take these doctrines out of our heads and put them in the seats around us. God put you next to these people because these people have the gifts that go along with your gifts that make a gospel community. You need one another. As modern Americans, we like to think we don't, right? We like to just come here and hear a nice message and have some communion and go home. We need one another. We need one another. We are incomplete by ourselves. Look up to God every day. That's the key. Don't just look around. Look up. Your relationship with Jesus sets the tone of all your relationships. Read the word of God. Speak with God. Get your eyes off yourself and onto him, not as a devotional ritual, but as a way of life. As a way of life. Cultivate self-forgetfulness by paying attention to him as often as you can. And the more you lift your head up, look up to him, the more you get your eyes off everyone else and stop thinking about self. Okay, you stop judging that. You look at him, and then when you look down, you can see everyone in light of him. That's, that's the key. I need you, you need one another to not make this simply a devotional ritual. This needs to become a way of life for us. It, that's the life worthy of the gospel. Then you will get your focus off yourself and onto him and those who are in him, your brothers and sisters. As you look out, you forget yourself, you lose interest in promoting self, and you are free to see and hear what is going on around you. Finally, C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that God wants us to know him so that we experience humility. We experience humility so that we will take off the silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we are all obsessed with as we strut about like little idiots, getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing. That's God's goal. Because if you put death to self, you're ready to look around. You're ready to really see people, really hear people, really find out what's going on with people. Okay, we can't fool God. We are truly needy people, all of us. What makes us partakers of grace together is our need. There's no pride in that. There is only humility. And we are still needy. Paul writes the Philippian, or wants the Philippians to remember the gospel because they still need it. They've forgotten that fact. They think, okay, now I'm ready to move on to more nuanced aspects of theology and whether Apollos or Paul are better, and they're getting off of the gospel. They're forgetting it in, in this argument that they're having with one another, this disunity they're experiencing. He wants them to remember that humility is rest. That's what it is. Humility is ceasing to toil in vain while letting Jesus' strength flow through us by the Holy Spirit. Striving to protect and stroke our egos is the most wearisome work that any of us can do. It's so tiring all the time. Feeding self, walking self, dressing self, washing self, promoting self. It's so wearisome. 
Left to yourself, you are no good and you aren't strong. Otherwise, you never needed Jesus in the first place. But you did. But you did, and you know that you did. And he came, and by his grace, he gave you everything you lacked and everything you needed. Rest in that. The old self, nail it up to the cross. Feel secure in God's love for you. Remember the gospel. Jesus did, in fact, come. He overcame his enemies. He secured our place in the family of God. God is more than pleased with you. In him, in him, God is more than pleased with you, more than satisfied with you. Stop trying. I'm not impressed. He's not impressed. The people around you are not impressed. Okay? And what are we losing? Because we are all so focused on self. Think of what we lose. Jesus is the co-heir of the universe. There's nothing left to earn. This is the profound thing about it. There's nothing left to earn even if we could. It's important to know that humility is not an unctuous self-loathing. Okay, I don't want now in the foyer after this for everyone to come up and tell me how stupid they are. Please don't do that. Because that's not humility. I don't know about you, but this is the trick I, taught, I use all the time. If I just put myself down a little bit, people will think I'm very humble. That's this self-conscious thing that I got going on. But humility is not self-loathing. Okay? It's confidence. That's what is so weird about it. Humility is an unbelievable, unshaking confidence in Christ, not yourself. Marcus Bachmule, that's a funny name, he wrote, he wrote this. Instead of pursuing their own prestige, that strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion, the Philippians are called to humility, the lowliness of heart which agrees to treat and think of others preferentially. The biblical view of humility is precisely not feigned, it's not groveling, not a sanctimonious or pathetic lack of self-esteem, but rather a mark of moral strength and integrity. It involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies and entrusting one's fortunes to God rather than to one's abilities and resources. In fact, when you meet a person who is truly humble, this is what you will notice. Okay? He won't think of himself as humble. You won't even notice that he's humble. You will merely notice a very cheerful person who took a very real interest in you and how you were doing. That's how you recognize a truly humble person. You don't even notice it. All you notice is, wow, that guy was cheerful and he really cared about what was going on with me. That's what Paul is trying to tell them. Get your mind off yourself and onto Christ. And when you do that, you now are able to really pay attention. You're really interested in others. Humility comes from looking up at the exalted Lord Jesus and seeing yourself in the light he offers freely to you as a partaker of grace. When we are humble, we have all the confidence the gospel offers us. And we don't think of ourselves, we think of others. We are less concerned with being interesting and more concerned with being interested in everyone else. Okay, now, self-forgetfulness leads us organically to imitate Jesus in compassionate service of others. This is where we take the turn now. Okay, this is the part we all want. We want to be compassionate servants. We don't want the humility so much. But the only way we're going to get to be compassionate servants of one another is if we do all of the things I've already talked about. Humility has to come first. Okay, Paul goes on, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The first step to compassionate service is focusing your attention on the needs that are all around you. Your interests are not your only concern. The people sitting around you belong to you in Christ. Their concerns and interests are your concerns and interests. 
and taking on the interests of others automatically unites you together, not in some theological, metaphysical, or ethereal way, okay? But in right here, right now, real-world unity. When you make someone's interests sitting next to you, your interests, bam, you are united right now, standing here, talking to one another. There's real unity. You can feel it. Be of the same mind and the same love, Paul says. This is what the Bible usually calls compassion. Compassion means to make someone else's burden your burden. If I owe $100 and you pay it, you've transferred that debt now to yourself. You've taken my burden upon yourself and freed me from it. That's what compassion means. That's what it means to, take, to be concerned with the interests of others. But the problem with compassion is that you need to actually know what other people's burdens are. Right? <laughs> if you don't know what other people's burdens are, you're never going to attempt to take them from them. What are the interests of others? What are their fears and struggles? What are their joys and loves? Once you begin to experience real self-forgetfulness, your attention can focus on others, greeting one another and asking questions. How are you? No, no. How are you really? (laughs) How are your kids? Are there any health issues in your home? What are you reading right now? How is God using that in your life? Have you seen any beautiful displays of his glory in nature recently? That is... Well, I talked about last week, that thing that we miss, right? All of us could stand out here and talk about the Seahawks for an hour, right? I know some of you well enough to have all kinds of little side conversations that could take up about 15 minutes. But how much of our time is actually spent asking real questions, listening, right? No, we, we do the casual, nice thing a little bit, and then we go home. But if we are walking in humility, we don't care about ourselves, we, we lose ourselves, and we look at others, and we're really ready to listen and hear. We really are interested in them. This is what we need as a community. This is what Christianity needs. This is what the people of God need more than ever. We are all partakers of grace because we are all in need. Now, if you listen for the need, you will hear it. If you watch for it, you will see it. It might not be readily apparent. People might be guarded. But if you pay attention to the interests of others, you will see opportunities to serve, to bless to pray. If we are treating dinners and community groups and after church picnics and retreats and book studies and the foyer of the church as an opportunity to learn about one another, we will find that the need is all around us. This is a fellowship of the needy. We know that already. We needed grace and God gave it to us. We came here into this building today as needy people. So pretending like we aren't doesn't do us any good. Now, I know that what some of you, um, I know some of you might be squirming at this, right? Oh, my gosh, i got to ask somebody about how they're really doing. Really, i got to ask, really? Can I just hear that their week was great and go home? Now, if you feel the same way that I do about unsolicited advice, one of my biggest pet peeves ever, I know why you're sitting there squirming, okay? I'm so arrogant. I hate unsolicited advice. Thank you. That's great. Nice. Yeah, thanks. I knew that already, but all right. Nice. Right? That's how we are. I can't. I, I personally can't stand it. It's one of the things that has to die in me, unsolicited advice. If you observe others, you see their sins, you see their foibles, you see their blemishes, you see their flaws. You know so-and-so is an oversharer in goodness. I don't want any of that. Okay? But what do we have? What do you get? When you're avoiding all that stuff, what do you get? Why do people struggle with that sin, we ask ourselves. Right? This is, this is what keeps us from going deeper with people. We see their foibles. We see their sins. We see what's going on. Sometimes it's right there on the surface. And we think to ourselves, seriously? 
Seriously? Such a simple thing to overcome. Why don't they understand the doctrine of justification? It's so simple. Why don't they just tell that kid to be quiet? It's so simple. <laughs> they just need to be more self-reflective, right? I have sat in the car driving away from this place thinking that. Let's go home and pray that that person is more self-reflective. Right? And here I am sharing this with all of you guys because this is what we need to talk about as a church. I'm too busy to help people figure out something that is so simple we think all the time. I need grown-up Christian problems. I need grown-up Christian problems, darn it. I've been a Christian 10 years. I want to fight Islam. Okay, I want to go on Facebook and I want to join a crusade against some problem that doesn't personally affect me at all. Right? That's what I want. I want grown-up stuff. But my eyes can't see the back of my head. My eyes can't see the back of my head. And that's why God put people behind me and beside me and in front of me so that they can tell me what I can't see. The burden, uh, that burden that you see, if you have eyes to see it, is yours. That doubt and that fear that you hear, if you have ears to hear it, is yours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it is the fellowship of the cross to experience the burden of one another. That's what the fellowship of the cross is about. Not talking about it, not just coming here and listening to a sermon, but sharing the burden of one another. That's the fellowship of the gospel. We want to change the world, right? We want to fight for the church, especially now. Supreme Court, get ready, we're coming. We want to defend the faith. But there are people all around us who, who are in need, and we can't be bothered with it because we lack sympathy and are thinking of grand, impractical fights abroad. Right? It's like as if I was constantly concerned with what was going on overseas and didn't care about the fact that my family doesn't have anything to eat. I mean, this is really, as a church, where we're at. Some will say, now some will, okay, no, I don't have a problem with that. It's not that. That's not the problem, Mike. It's that I'm unqualified. It's that I'm not very wise. I don't think it's my place. I'm kind of stupid, right? And then you see the false humility again. You were saved into this community with talents that fit perfectly with everyone else's. God saved you to, to participate in this fellowship because we need you. We need all of, all of us. We need all of us. Some will say, I've gotten close to people, and they just left me. They just abandoned the community. They abandoned me. It takes a lot of time and effort, and it's all for nothing. People can't be trusted. People just hurt you. That one I understand as well. Okay, we've, we've spent hours with people, and it came to what? Nothing. Okay, but again, I'm going to go to C.S. Lewis here. This man, he says so much with so few words. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. If you have been betrayed or abandoned, if you have, been, if you have spent years mentoring and ministering to people and it came to naught, then you are in the company of Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, all he wanted was his friends to stay awake and pray with him, and they all were too tired, too selfish to stay awake. All the bold talk of Peter and everyone else, how we'll be there for you, Jesus. Where were they at his trial? There are lots of reasons we resist compassion. There are a lot of reasons we resist one another. 
We resist service and opening ourselves up to other people's problems. But the heart of it, again, is our desire to serve and protect ourself. And we need to realize that. We need to admit that. We didn't like the pain it caused. We want bigger fish to fry than so-and-so struggle with something as simple as justification. We think other people's sins are far worse than ours. We think, plain and simple, too highly of ourselves, too highly of our own reputations, our own comfort, our own interests, our own sweet little self. The church in Philippi was a city on a hill. That's what Paul calls them. You were a city on a hill. Paul's interests and concerns were repeatedly taken up by the Philippians. They sent him aid over and over and over again. He was grateful for them, and he rejoiced that the gospel proclaimed by their compassionate service to, to him and to one another. He rejoiced in it. But now problems were arising that they wanted him to weigh in on suddenly. Okay, they used to just send him help and tell him good news. Okay, now he's hearing these th- reports from them, and it's all this personal nonsense that is easily swallowed up if they just acted like who they were. That's all he wants them to do is act like who they are. He himself is demonstrating true humility and compassion in the, in the request that he's making of them. This is his situation when he writes this letter. He's in jail under a death sentence, bearing the burdens of Christianity. But he says that his joy will be complete if this one church would merely put on the mind of humility and serve one another in a fellowship of grace. Okay, this is how much it meant to Paul that churches do this. Okay, this is the letter he would write to us. You know who you are. Act like it. You know who you are. Act like it. Live worthy of that title, Christian. We haven't lost something, but we are struggling to find it. How do we impact the community of Linwood with the gospel? How do we do it? We, we talk as a church. Everyone, it's on everyone's mind. How do we do it? Humble-mindedness. Humble-mindedness developed through our adoration and contemplation of Jesus and all of his beauty and goodness and power leads us to put ourselves to death and to live for Christ, both his head and his body and his world. It starts with humble-mindedness. To live for him and our siblings in him and those who don't know him. This is what we need to do. We can't go out there and do anything if we're not unified here. This is the lesson he's telling the Philippians. Humility frees us to hear and see the interests of one another, frees us to identify and empathize with others. And the more we do it here for one another, the more we are capable to do it together in the world. Okay? Humility, compassion is like a muscle. And the more you do with it, the more you can do with it. Right? The more push-ups you do, the more push-ups you can do. The more you are selfless and compassionate and humble, the, the more you will be humble and selfish and compassionate. Right? It's a muscle. Humility gets our eyes off of ourselves and onto one another. Then we know what's going on with one another. We know when we need to write a check, when we need to write a letter, when we need to babysit for one another, and goodness, when we need to pray for one another. We know when and what to pray for. We know that God is doing in our midst, and we can gain encouragement from it. I need your stories. I need the grace that you're participating in. I need to hear that. We begin to mature in our fellowship. We rally around the giving and receiving of grace. We are a light shining on a hill. This is the way. This is the path. And it starts with the same one Christ went down, dying to himself and living for the goodness of others. He knew what other people needed, and he came and did it. And he he gave no concern for himself. If you want to be that kind of person in the world, it starts with dying to yourself. It starts with dying to yourself. We begin to mature in our fellowship 
We rally around the giving and receiving of grace. We are a light shining on a hill. We are a community worthy of the gospel, true citizens of heaven, ready to expand the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in the greater world. And amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this message. We pray, Father, that um, even as we are faced with difficulties within our own hearts, that you comfort us with the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you give us the same courage, the same humility, by dying to ourselves and living for your will. We all want to. We all know what's true. But we pray, Father, that your spirit would descend upon us in greater and greater strength, giving us the ability to do it, to die to ourselves and live for Christ and for one another and for this world. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for this fellowship of the gospel that you've brought us into. And we pray, Father, that you continue to give us a deep and abiding affection for you and for your body of the church and for the world that you created. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen.